0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element FM.
0: Oh, greetings and welcome to Moment of Truth. And with that little ding we heard in the background, it's a pleasure to welcome everyone to the show. And if you're listening on Element FM, that is in Toronto and Ottawa, then you know the coordinates 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country as well, especially now on the iHeartRadio app. You can listen on the iHeartRadio app and take us with you anywhere you go. We also want to welcome those listeners on other radio stations that now carry moment of truth and uh, you could also listen of course on your favorite podcast platform we welcome Any and all listeners, and we welcome our guest to the show today as well. I have with me two people from Statistics Canada, and I'm sure I'm going to trip over statistics several times because it's one of those tricky words. But with us here on the show, we have Melinda Commanda, and she is the Indigenous Liaison Advisor for the Centre for Indigenous Statistics and Partnerships, Social Health and Labour Statistics with Statistics Canada, as well as Nancy Guarino, and she is the director of census central region for statistics canada as well and thank you to both of you for joining us on the show to talk about what else but statistics canada and the new census that's uh, going to be coming out so thank you to both of you welcome Thank
2: you David.
0: Well, it's a pleasure to have you both here now. It's interesting to find out how people get involved with the kind of work that they do. So how did how did you each of you get involved with finding this line of work and what do you find interesting about it? Can we start with Nancy?
3: Sure, David, and um, as Melinda said, thanks for having us. Mm. So, um, yeah, I graduated from the University of Guelph uh, 32 years ago and uh, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, and I took a short-term position with Statistics Canada as an interviewer. Um, and you know what? You fall in love with uh, the data. You see the need for the information, mm. um, and Canadians gobble it up. Um, it's used for decision-making on so many fronts, Um, And Statistics Canada is such a great place to work. So I started and never left, David.
0: (laughs) Great. Well, thank you for that.
2: Melinda. Hi. Hey. Um, Statistics Canada actually became my second career. I went back to school in 95 and got my honors uh, bachelor's degree Mm -hmm. in commerce. Okay. And I was doing some consulting work. And I got offered a contract at Statistics Canada to help with the First Nations communities in 2001. Uh, Finished the contract, but then came back in 2003 and have been here since. (laughs) As Nancy said, it is a great place to work. I do believe in the data. I do believe that it does help. And I believe that um, getting the data back to First Nations communities to help them as well is part of my my own
0: mm.
2: um, assistance to First Nations communities. Mm. So, yeah, it's a second career, and I do really enjoy working here.
0: Great. Well, thank you for that as well. Now, you just touched on something, and that is about getting the information back to First Nation communities. And I'm sure you know that because of history, there is that mistrust that has been built up with anything to do with questionnaires or trying to get information from First Nation communities. Have you found a change in that over time? Or, or how, how are you seeing that information uh, being disseminated or being willingly uh, brought out of the communities at this point? Point in time,
2: I do see the change over time, um, especially as uh, the number of First Nations communities who do not participate in the census has um, significantly dropped since we've been on board from 1996. Mm. Um, that data is even on our website to tell you who who it does not participate mm. and and stuff. But the number of communities has dropped over the years that we have been here. Mm. This Indigenous liaison advisor that I am, I am part of a whole team across Canada Mm. that work with First Nations communities, organizations, same with Métis and Inuit. We work with the Indigenous population Mm. uh, specifically to uh, provide information, give um, some data analysis or statistical training when we can. Offer our assistance when we can, and then we also have. And from the twenty sixteen census, mm-hmm. we um, provided reports to all First Nations communities, knowing um, that their their some of their offices are so human resources are not there to. Right. Look at the data and analyze it, and and make informed decisions. So we do, We have produced a report and provided it to all the communities.
0: Now you said you believe in the in the reports in the in the information that's being brought forward from the statistics, and I'm sure that there is probably valuable information that could be gained um, if there were more participation from Indigenous and First Nation communities and. Understanding that that mistrust over the years—it's all—it's all based on trying to help. At this point in time, is it not so that if if it would help them to uh, to participate more, so that more information could be gained, and that might help them from, like you said, a human resources perspective, more money flowing back to the community for different things, et cetera, et cetera.
3: Yeah, absolutely, David. You're absolutely right. And one of the things um, that we're really trying to do is hire indigenous people we're trying to hire local um in ontario that will mean over 400 um, people to work uh specifically on reserve that's what we're trying to do Um, and of course we've had to adapt our plan uh, because of the pandemic but um, we want to hire local Uh, we want to continue to build the trust to uh, To ensure that there is um, accurate data that people can use for solid uh, decision making at the community level.
0: Right. Now I understand that the census has been uh, been going on for over a hundred years.
2: Yes, it has.
0: <laughs> that's that's a long time to be gathering information. Um, how how much is the history of of a census important to looking at the future of of a country or at what the census gathers
3: it's it's absolutely important it's it's the it's the data that you get um so that you can make comparisons you can see over time how things have evolved um and as you say we've done it uh, for over 100 years so we're not new to it um but it's absolutely there so you can see the trends in the data
0: Mm. Now I see that um, for the 2021 census, that content was published in the Canadian Gazette on July 17th of 2020. So people would go there. What would people see if they went to that Canadian Gazette to to look at that? What would they see?
3: They would see the questions that uh, that will be asked that have been approved, um, and it's a lot of um, a lot of fairly you know fairly standard uh, information. It's basic demographics. Its age, um, its sex at birth, gender, marital status, uh, ethnic origin, population, religion—it's um, it, those sort of questions that every Canadian uh, will be asked.
0: And and how big of a document is it? Is it, is it fairly easy to look through? Is it?
3: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No. It's it's fairly it's fairly standard stuff for us at, at Statistics Canada and for Canadians. Simple to follow. We're hoping that. Uh, most Canadians go online. Every Canadian will have the option of going online with a secure access code and responding to, uh, to the questions in the comfort of their own home. Mm. We also have a, a phone uh, option as well, uh, David, for those uh, who don't go online. Mm-hmm. But um, we expect that uh, 9 out of 10 uh, Canadians will uh, self-response. So 8 out of 10 will uh, go online. And participate. Um, we'll uh, provide a phone number for some to participate over the phone, and then we will uh, will help a small percentage um, to complete it.
0: Mm. Uh, going back to the the hiring question, because I see if you go online, look, you're you're looking to hire about thirty two thousand people from across Canada. And Melinda, I think you said about four hundred Indigenous people.
2: Yes. In Ontario, it's four hundred across Canada. We're looking to hire for all First Nations communities locally, Mm -hmm. but in Ontario specifically, it is about four hundred Indigenous people Mm -hmm. um, for on reserve collection, so that we can hire locally. That's our our our, our biggest goal is to hire locally. So, as as you said, yes, you can go online um, to uh, apply for the job at www. Dot census.gc.ca dot dot backslash jobs, hmm. or you can also uh, call us at 1 833 830 3106, and that number is specifically for recruitment.
0: Okay. Okay, great. Now, for people that might be listening to this and going, you know, maybe that's something I wouldn't mind doing. What can people expect once they're hired? What, what kind of involvement? How much time is involved? Uh, you know, those kind of things for people.
2: Um, it is 20 to 40 hours, depending. Um, a lot of weekend and evening work mm-hmm. uh, for some community. It just also depends on the size of the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, to you can call um, some communities are mail out so the Canada Post will be sending the letter Mm -hmm. other communities the enumerator will be dropping the form off at the door and not like entering Mm -hmm. so we're mindful of the pandemic we're in and trying to keep the staff and respondents as safe as possible
0: Right, and and that makes perfect sense. So, what's the timeline for this? When do they have to be um, have their work completed by?
3: So the the, the census right now, as you you know, we've had to adapt a bit. So right now we're hoping to be done uh, by July. So this summer, some of the jobs have already started, David. But uh, as Melinda said, we're still hiring Mm -hmm. um, mostly in uh, northern and rural communities. But um, yeah, they can start uh, in April and uh, we expect to be wrapped up sometime in July.
0: Right. Okay. Now, the other thing that I see on the site is that it, it one in 2016, uh, it had a, it was a record-breaking year for the census in terms of participation.
3: Yes, we had over 60 percent um, go online and uh, respond online. We're hoping that will be 80 uh, percent, and with a 98 percent response rate overall. So. Canadians uh, see the value of uh, the data and uh, they're good at participating.
0: What are we what are we talking about in terms of numbers when you say 60 80% um, what kind of what kind of numbers are we looking at in terms of people that are responding?
3: So is 80% of the population of Canada is what we we are expecting will go online Okay,
0: and 98% of the total population will respond in one way or another whether that's by phone um, or whether that's uh, going online. Wow, that, that is pretty significant. I, I didn't realize it was the entire population we were talking about. That's great. Wow.
3: It is. Yeah, absolutely. It is. Every Canadian has, uh, has the opportunity to, uh, to participate and to, uh, to complete the form with their information so that they count uh, towards part of the data that's published.
0: Now, one of the things it describes as you look at the census and, and just the general overview, it talks about, you know, uh, stakeholders. The stakeholders, who, what does that mean when it says stakeholders? Is it talking about the general population or is it talking about more specific kind of stakeholders?
3: So, stakeholders for us is our users, people who use the data yeah. after. So, we're hoping we'll have the data out. Uh, published early uh, in 2022 after we wrap up the census. Mm -hmm. Um, So the stakeholders will use the data. Um, That could be governments, that could be students, that could be business owners. Um, Everyone has access to our data. As Melinda said, there's very specific reports for our Indigenous communities that uh, she's played a big part of. So uh, they're the people who will use the data after extensively.
0: So what, how can the census information be used by, I certainly understand it from a, gov- a government perspective um, in terms of, you know, what's going on with the population, how are things shaping, uh, and and those kind of things. If you get into business, how might a business utilize this information?
3: It would be used, uh, David, to, let's say you wanted to start a business and you weren't sure where you wanted to put that business. You might want to know more about um, a small geography to mm. say, is this a good place to start my business? Or um, I can give you an, another example. Is this a good place to put up a senior center? Right. Uh,
0: is this a good place? Where do we need maybe indigenous
3: training programs? Mm. This, this data uh, is all part of uh, helping to make those decisions. Mm.
0: Uh, Melinda, from your perspective, in terms of the indigenous view, how, how, how do you think that these statistics information helps?
2: Well, I agree with Nancy and and things like that. But for a First Nations community, it does help with their planning. Um, Let's just say a community has a large population that's under 15 years of age. Then that community would have to look at possibly daycares, recreational facilities for these youth. Um, Or if your population is aging out, you might need to plan for seniors' home or something on that community. Healthcare services for an elderly population is a bit different than looking after a younger population. So all these types of things, and the data provides this information, uh, would help you in, in what you need to plan for in the future or currently. Uh, the other thing is we do have, like the age groupings would help planning with education. What percentage of your population are you going to be planning for that are going to post-secondary in the next, you know, five years and things like that. So all of this data does help. It's just a matter of utilizing it at at all times.
0: Right. Understood. Okay. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And of course, as we mentioned, you can also listen on the iHeartRadio app, anywhere uh, across the country you just download the app and uh Type in our numbers and listen anywhere you go. And it's a pleasure to have with us here on the show today, Melinda Commanda. She's the Indigenous Liaison Advisor for Centre for Indigenous Statistics and Partnerships, Social Health and Labour Statistics with Statistics Canada, as well as Nancy Moreno, And she is the Director, Census Central Region Stas- with Statistics Canada as well. There's that statistics word again for me that I'm tripping over. Um a couple of the things that, that I think about are, one, is COVID. How COVID has not only um, made changes for us, and, and you point out about how how uh, the, the statistics candidate and census is being changed uh, accordingly to protect people, etc. That's one thing. It, it, do, is, is the pandemic going to affect the long-term uh, census in in terms of what we might be looking at in the future?
3: Good question, David. And it's interesting because those of us at Statistics Canada also trip over that word. So (laughs)
2: um,
3: you're in good company. Um, So um, we're, we're not concerned about the quality um, of the data. Um, And that's the big change that we've had to make. This time around mm-hmm. is normally Canadians would invite us into their homes um, and this time around. So if you needed help completing the, the, the census questionnaire, um, it wouldn't be unusual in previous censuses for us to uh, enter a home and help people complete forms who needed it Mm. this time around in order to adhere to strict safety protocol we will not enter homes Mm. and that's the real push this time around is to try to get the word out there that we need people to complete the census online that is the most safe way to do it Um, They can also phone and um, I think Melinda's provided the phone number um, and we can do that again, but um, it's to complete it at a safe distance. So where we do have to knock on doors and there will be some of that, absolutely. um, While we... uh, help remind Canadians to complete, we will knock on a door and step back and all staff, everybody we hire will be um, given personal safety equipment, which is masks and hand sanitizers. So um, like I say, we've had to we've had to adapt and change this time around a bit of our procedures, um, but we are uh, absolutely committed to conducting a safe um, census and producing quality data.
0: Right. Uh, now, of course, we hear and we've seen now over the last year and a half, I guess, almost, that we've been in this. We're all, we've all changed our, our work environments, just like we're doing now. We might have originally met in the, st- the station studio offices to have this, uh, this conversation. But, of course, now we're doing it online, as many things have done. And I, I guess that's what I'm wondering. You think that, that that side of it might become more permanent going forward?
3: Yeah, it's interesting because as we've adapted, Melinda and I um, have watched the entire agency move to a teleworking environment. Mm -hmm. So very different for some of us, not Melinda, but for myself, I would normally be in a Toronto office. And now I'm in my home office with Mm -hmm. uh, all of my Statistics Canada colleagues. But yeah, it very well could change things um, longer term in that we don't um, ever Change and go back into people's houses. Maybe more and more people go online, which absolutely is what we're expecting, and that's just the way the uh, the census evolves. And we don't need the mm. the uh, the personal touch. Um, mm. But as I say, this time it'll be in very rare cases where it has to happen. It'll be a knock at the door and step back.
0: Okay. Uh, question for for each of you, and that is if possible can you think of an example of how in past the the, the census has has helped in some way it, through a community did you get some feedback somewhere does anything come to mind for either of you in terms of how the information helped a community
2: um in the past, I know I have worked with a lot of communities with their, da- with their data, and I know I sat even with a with a chief or a farmer chief, I guess, now because it's been years. Mm-hmm. But a farmer chief and gone through the data with him because mm-hmm. he did not understand right. Like a lot of the line items and stuff. Right. So we went through it all, and he has a better understanding of the, the data now, mm-hmm. and he has also a better understanding of what it could be used. You right. can see it. When he, when we were going through it, he's right. like, oh, so we can use this to help us with this funding right. proposal. Right. And it was like, yes, you can use that data to help you with that funding proposal. So I have seen and I have heard of many communities using the data to assist with their funding proposals or to assist in um, planning businesses on mm. their home communities. Mm. So, and that's economic development for sure. them as well. So these kinds of things are very helpful.
0: Right. Great. Thank you, Nancy. Anything come to mind for you?
2: Yeah, I
3: was gonna. I was absolutely going to um, zero in there on the economic development um, that Melinda and her uh, her colleagues across Canada have helped many, many communities um, with the specific reports that come out for each community. So it allows the communities really to see, okay. This is this is what we look like and this is what we need um, and, and the, de- the decisions that can be made, um, particularly on the economic uh, front to help the different
2: communities.
0: Mm. The other thing that comes to mind for me is, is have you seen a, a change, perhaps not necessarily recently, but over the long term? How has how has the the, the view of religion changed? I know that's one of the questions you guys look at.
2: The religion question comes on every 10 years. Okay. uh, Just for your information. Mm -hmm. And we have changed it to actually reflect more um, indigenous populations as well. Mm. Uh, The examples that you go on there could be, um, we provide examples to say uh, traditional Mm -hmm. and other things like that. So it, The census is inclusive of all denominations. Mm.
0: Oh, great. Okay, thank you for that. Um, The other thing I think of is... Um, and, and Nancy I believe you brought this up earlier uh, or someone did and that is the question about uh, sex at birth the LGBTQ community is certainly becoming a uh, much more uh, a prominent community and it's something that uh, we certainly see here at the station quite a bit as well so how, how has that changed over the years?
3: So we um, we clearly listened um, and uh, evolved the census. Um, we wanted uh, all Canadians to see themselves in the census, and mm-hmm. that's why um, those questions have changed. Um, so uh, the question about um, a person's uh, sex at birth and gender; mm-hmm. those are specifically introduced um, so that everybody will see themselves. Absolutely.
0: I'm just wondering, just as we start to finish up here, um, is there anything that comes to mind for either of you in any general sense of of the, the census and, and Statistics Canada and the information that rolls out that you have seen a big change in somehow over the years, something that jumps out at you that you guys weren't expecting or that was a surprise to see?
3: I guess for me, it's not... Um and maybe we're so ingrained at Statistics Canada um, that how the need for data and data for solid decision-making has evolved over my career at, uh, at Statistics Canada. People are hungry for solid information to make decisions, and that's what we see with the census. So it's so exciting to see more and more Canadians go online. Um, it makes it super efficient for us. They can conduct it in the uh, privacy of their own homes, and then um, Canadians love seeing this data when we publish it early next year. So, um, for me, I guess it's the evolution of uh, how much uh,
2: how much there is a need for data and uh, Canadians to use it.
0: Mm, okay, great. Uh, uh, and Melinda, any any final comments that come to mind?
2: Well. As Nancy said, yes, it's the need for the data. Um, More Indigenous organizations, communities are using the data. It is free online. You can access it or some people contact me because they just need that. And again, we like we said, we're hiring locally. So please um, apply online. And thank you, David.
0: <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Do you want to give out that information once more, Melinda, the phone number and the, uh, the online um, uh, address?
2: Sure. You can apply online at www.census.gc.ca backslash jobs. Or you can call, the phone at, call by phone at by phone 830 3106
0: Great. Well, thank you to both of you for taking your time to join us on the show and talk about the uh, census and and, uh, Statistics Canada and filling in some of those uh, those interesting things that uh, Statistics Canada and the census can do for us.
2: Well, thank you for having us. Thanks so much, David. It was a pleasure being here.
0: All right. Well, thank you again. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. And they are the voices of Melinda Commanda, the Indigenous Liaison Advisor for the Centre for Indigenous Statistics and Partnerships with Social Health and Labour Statistics at Statistics Canada, as well as Nancy Guarino, the Director of Census Central Region for Statistics Canada. That's this part of the program. Please don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more right after this. (laughs) Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses.
3: Element, Element, Element FM.
0: Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, of course. And download the iHeartRadio app, type in our coordinates, and take us with you anywhere you go. You could also be listening on one of the other radio stations that now carry the Moment of Truth. We appreciate that. And uh, you might also be listening on one of your favorite podcast platforms. We welcome all of you listeners to the show. It is a pleasure to also welcome to the show with me I have Mr. Simon Nahi, and he is on the show to talk about an article he put in the conversation, and I found it quite. Fascinating, just in the title, 3D Printed Organs Could Save Lives by Addressing the Transplant Shortage. Now, that title alone is, to me, something that I didn't realize that 3D printing could do. Now, I'm not surprised in some ways, I just hadn't made that connection to think that 3D printing is something that could be used to help with organs and to help save lives in that way. So, it's a pleasure to have uh, Simon on the show to talk about this. So, welcome to the show, Simon.
1: Hi, hi to you and your listeners, and thanks for the opportunity.
0: As I said, I didn't think that 3D printing was something that could be used for organ transplants to help out in this way. How long is, has 3D printing been looked at in, in terms of this this kind of thing?
1: Actually, it's a very interesting topic. Uh, for myself, I uh, wasn't familiar with the area until I started my uh, master program mm. and we started uh, to uh, take, a, take a course in additive manufacturing or simply 3D printing and it was very interesting to see uh, what are the applications of this technology in different domains and one of these is use of this application specifically for biomedical engineering applications. Uh, this uh, org- uh, organ artificial printing itself it's a hot topic these days and many researchers around the world is, is working on it. And uh, it's reported uh, and in different ways that in, in a few years, it, we will have a 3D bioprinter in every hospital. And uh, this is due to uh, the current shortage of organs and long list of persons who are waiting for, for donors.
0: Wow. Uh, In a few years, you say, every hospital is going to have a 3D printer?
1: Yeah, it was interesting. I was reading in a report by 2015. It was reporting that it's uh, very, uh, very fast and it's uh, it's the technology that's going to be replaced and be used uh, in different ways. Uh, uh, But by now, you can see that it has some, uh, it already translated into clinical applications for some specific applications but in case of organ it's kind of uh, complicated and that's Mm. why uh, we are doing more research doing more doing the cell studies animal studies and make it ready for the clinical translation.
0: Mm. Saman you uh, work with the University of Saskatchewan in the Department of Mechanical Engineering and and in the Division of Biomedical Engineering correct? yes that's right there's two things here with this article that are fascinating to me one is the 3D printing idea so there's the the technical realm of the 3D printing itself but then it's creating these organs for donors and I, I couldn't help but think about what is the material it's being used I don't really know what, what it makes things out of
1: yeah for sure it's uh, very interesting I try to uh, explain it's it's kind of we can consider a regular inkjet printer that we use day by day basically mm. loading the ink inside yep. the feeder and then start printing on a paper and it's right. basically a 2d printing uh, consider this and having uh, thousands of layers of two, uh, 2d printing layer by layer and adding one on the top of the previous layer mm. uh, it's basically the same idea here Instead of the regular ink, we are replacing this with different types of uh, biomaterials, the material that are compatible with the body. Uh, but here we have a wide range of uh, materials that we can use. It can be synthetic polymers, uh, like the plastic you mentioned, or it can be more natural polymers that I've been uh, working with for a few years because of the having the cell-friendly environment uh, Using these natural polymers, it's it's uh, it's it's going to be
0: huge. It sounds like we're just on the edge of this uh, this frontier with what the three D printer is going to be able to do.
1: Yeah, for sure, it's uh, it's going to be uh, discover other possibilities of using these printings, as I mentioned, in different different areas in different industrial sectors. Mm. Uh, But here, specifically in 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 terms of uh, artificial organ. Generation,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's going to be the focus will be more on uh, printing a mixture of cells and biomaterials. And in this case, uh, uh, we were going to uh, work on some challenges that we have. And one of these challenges is uh, it's not an easy task to, to deal with printing uh, such natural polymers. Specifically, we were uh, using alginate, which is an algae-dry polymer. And uh, the most, of, most of the time, the problem is that once you are going to print a mixture of cells and this alginate, like this natural polymer together, it will uh, flow like a, like a liquid. And this is the, one, of the, one of the challenges that uh, we are working on it to address the poor printability of such uh, materials. Mm-hmm. They are cell-friendly, but on the other hand, it's not an easy task. It's not easy to, to print them layer by layer. And the goal here is to uh, find uh, the connections between the factors that are affecting the printability. And this is uh, one of the reasons that many researchers uh, these days are working on uh, printability challenges mm-hmm. in order to address this.
0: You know, when I when I think about a three D printer, of course, and the kind of things that it would have to create for an organ donor, not only that it has to be pliable or flexible enough, right? And that's some of the things you're talking about there with the the polymers and the kind of and the alginate that you're you're talking about using, because it collapses on itself and and it becomes too liquefied and those kind of things. Yes.
1: Uh, yes, exactly. So basically, we are using. This technology to create a, a temporary structure. It's pretty much uh, like uh, civil engineering. Basically, they use a scaffolding mm. in order to create the building. And once the building is is ready, they remove the uh, scaffolding and the structures. So we are here. We are doing. We have the same idea. Basically, we are going to 3D print a temporary structure. And uh, this structure can, can have different materials, different, uh, basically, different types of cells together. But it's a temporary structure. Hmm. So consider, uh, consider a bridge. Uh, the yep. goal of having a bridge is connecting two sites. Yep. And here, for example, we are, we are using uh, 3D bio by printed uh, structures. These are temporary structures and the goal is to connect uh, two sides of a damaged nerve, which is uh, not possible. If the damage is critical, the body cannot heal itself. So the goal is to have this uh, temporary structure here, connect two sides, and once the regeneration is happening, at the same time, the structure is going to be degraded, and it's kind of biodegradable, compatible Mm. with the body. Mm. And at the end, you have two sides connected, and suddenly so you can see that the structure is going to be degraded and vanish
0: yeah, and you give that example in your article, and there's a great picture of that, both uh, from the, the idea of how this, uh, this scaffold could connect the nerves that are damaged too far apart for it to be able to do it on its own, and how that scaffold would then help to do that. And then there's the pictures of the actual structure of a bridge with, with the kind of thing that you're talking about. You said it was a temporary. So what are we talking about when we say temporary? What's that, what does that mean? What kind of a time frame?
1: so actually uh, it depends so if we are uh, if we are talking about implants we have different types of implants some of them are uh, are designed and fabricated to be to be there for for many years uh, but the structures that we are talking about are uh, biodegradable and biocompatible uh, and it depends on the applications uh, we are using this technology in a wide range of applications from Uh, skin regeneration, cartilage regeneration, bone regeneration to creating some uh, cardiac patches for cardiovascular diseases. So it depends. Uh, Sometimes we need these temporary structures in terms of basically after degradation we want to have some specific drugs that basically incorporate it into the structure and once the degradation is happening uh, it will release into the into the region in the targeted area hmm. uh, so based on the application we have uh, different time frames and the goal of uh, tissue engineer here is that to satisfy both the mechanical and biological uh, requirements and as part of this process uh, we need to work on design and fabrication of uh, specific structures Based on the application and based on the area of implantation, we want to have it uh, basically degraded while having a, a mechanically stable structure to facilitate the regeneration and at the same time having the right uh, an appropriate rate of degradation. Because if the degradation happens very very fast, uh, we don't have a chance of regeneration and uh, the scaffold will fail. Mm. Uh, but in case we have a very uh, a structure with a high mechanical stability, the regeneration happen, and it can cause some problems if it uh, if it uh, uh, doesn't degrade appropriately. Uh,
0: and you know I can't help but go back to the comment you made about that a 3d printer in every hospital in a few years and and having access to this to be able to, to start doing some of these things is this just like any other 3d printer Is it just that the materials that you're working with that changes?
1: see it's, it's uh, it has different stages uh, at some point at this point researchers are working on development of new new materials. Mm. Because of the challenges that we are facing to print uh, the mat- current materials, uh, but uh, in terms of the 3D printers, a few years back I was uh, working in a hospital and they they were using a regular 3D printer. It wasn't to print cells. It was wasn't to print uh, biomaterials. It was more use of this application for uh, preoperative planning. Basically, they wanted to. Uh, have the process the medical imaging of the data of the patient and create some models and do some uh, studies with the uh, surgery team ahead of time in order to reduce the surgery surgery time mm. uh, so it was one of the interesting applications that i that I experienced uh, but uh, as we are going to develop this further and work on this more and more, uh, I'm hoping that in the future we will have access to different types of these printers in research centers and in hospitals. And based on the application, it can, can be a wide range of uh, these, uh, these printers can be used for different applications.
0: What I just heard you saying there, if it hasn't been used this way already, I can certainly see it being done in terms of research, in terms of uh, training for medical students, uh, as you just described how it it was being used to help with uh, pre-operation. I can certainly see how this is something that would be used in that application as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like uh, another good example is uh, uh, when I was working with uh, a school of dentistry, Mm. they had some uh, residents that uh, didn't have enough experience and they wanted to do uh, dental implantation, basically implanting some structures uh, in, in case of bone replacement. Mm. But because of lack of experience, sometimes it wasn't an easy task for them to find the specific location that they want to do the drilling. And because of that, sometimes they they damage the, the nerve. Mm. And So one of the other applications and interesting cases studied that I uh, was working on was uh, to use this technology of 3D printing and create some uh, guide implants. Basically, having the C V C T data of of the patient and work on it and create some uh, create a customized uh, implant guide. So after that, uh, the resident can easily put the uh, implant guide on the jaw and everything is ready, like the location of the drill, and it has some uh, fixtures in order to make sure that we are not going very down to Mm -hmm. in order to reach the nerve and damage the nerve.
0: Wow. Wow. That makes me think of something else. Uh, You know, one of my kids uh, wore an Invisalign for quite a number of years. Is the Invisalign designing uh, to create in in the 3D uh, print?
1: Like these days... uh, everything is is printable all you need is to to have a model ready Mm. and uh, do the slicing process and it's ready for for printing and that's why it has a huge application in different different sectors Mm. some of them are more in the aerospace some of them in automobile industry some of them more in the medical medical field and so this is the this is this is the thing that is very interesting with this technology, that it can be applicable to to anything. So as long as you have uh, the the file that you want to print, so it's, it's ready to go.
0: That's great. Um, I, I want to go back to the structures and uh, the idea of creating something that could help with the nerves, because if the gap is, if this can help mend the gap. And, and allow something to be uh, sturdy enough so that the nerves can rebuild themselves. You talk about the nerve, uh, you know, depending on what the nerve damage is. Has this shown that it can help increase the, the percentage of successful nerve rebuilding? You know how the article talks somewhat about that once a nerve is damaged to a certain point, that it it can't always get back to full, you know, one hundred percent. Has this helped in that regard?
3: Uh,
1: yeah, uh, uh, the thing that we did was uh, after uh, having the potential of the cell studies and seeing that uh, cells uh, cells are, are kind of happy in the structure and cells are alive after after days. So we moved to the next step. Uh, to do some some animal studies hmm. it's already uh, uh like there are lots of applications in this regard and uh, to work on the next step just before going to translation it into clinical applications uh, so in case of animal studies and found it very interesting because we were working on uh, cells collected from the animal uh And then by adding other cells that can help to facilitate the regeneration and connecting these two gaps together. And we found that uh, the axons, basically, uh, the things that are going to connect two sites, we could see that the growth of these axons, and we could see that uh, they are kind of aligned and going uh, to the direction of the damaged nerve. And it was very, very interesting results that, that we found.
0: Wow, fascinating stuff. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. I'm your host, David Moses. This is Moment of Truth. My guest is Saman Nahi, and he is uh, currently a design engineer at the Biofabrication Laboratory. He is a mechanical engineer. experienced in design, fabrication, project management, and solid works with a good knowledge of advanced manufacturing. And we're talking to him about an article he authored in The Conversation. It's entitled, 3D printed organs could save lives by addressing the transplant shortage so it's a pleasure to have uh, Saman on the show and talk to him about this fascinating topic I, I'm thoroughly fascinated by the whole idea of this and where it could go <clears throat> on the cutting edge of, of this uh, I guess technology to some degree but as he pointed out um, in a number of years every hospital could have a 3D printer on hand to start using this technology so, man, one of the things I also thought about as you were talking there is about the the time it takes for a three D printer to create something. How long does it take for a three D printer to actually go through its process?
1: Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, it uh, it depends on the dimension that you are printing. Sometimes for some applications, uh, like the preoperative planning uh, surgery that I mentioned, so it's uh, we were going to print a whole a skull of the patient so it could take uh, uh more than 20 hours to print such a structure mm. but if it's a a structure that we are going to use to be replaced basically connecting two side of a damaged damage nerve we are talking about a damaged nerve which is in a order of two centimeter and so so it's a kind of small structure and yeah. it will it will take uh you know in a few minutes it's ready <laughs> So it depends on the application and the type of structure that mm. we are printing.
0: Now, the other thing, of course, that comes to mind, well, there's a couple of things. One is, is um, the, the uh, stability of the printers themselves and, and how much maintenance they need, uh, et cetera, et cetera, that kind of thing. That's one thing. But the other thing that comes to mind is, of course, we're dealing with the human body and we're talking about putting things in the human body. Um, so there's sterility and, and all of those kind of things that come into play.
1: Exactly. uh, As part of this stability, uh, we we need to know what are the mechanical uh, characteristics of such a structure that we are going to use. And uh, for this, as part of our study, we also uh, try to uh, develop some numerical models uh, in order to predict the mechanical behavior of such structures uh, ahead of time, even before doing the fabrication part. Mm. Because sometimes we uh, print a structure and then we go with uh, we go with some mechanical testing mm. in order to characterize the structure the properties and make sure that it's uh, as per the require, requirements of that ta- of that target tissue. Mm. Uh, but this is also a very interesting field to to implement numerical modeling uh, in this case and basically predict the mechanical behavior of, ahead of time. Because this is this is always a trade-off. Sometimes we have a structure with high mechanical, mechanical stability. On the other side, it's not cell-friendly. Mm. Sometimes the structures uh, like the alginate that we were working with it's very, it's kind of cell-friendly. Uh, we can incorporate cells easily, but on the other side, it doesn't have the mechanical stability. So it's always it's uh, it's always a trade-off, and you are you are trying to. Uh, work on new uh, materials and sometimes mix some materials together in
0: order to have
1: both the mechanical and biological requirements.
0: Is this the kind of technology that could also help with things such as we all hear about hip and knee replacements?
1: Uh, yeah, for sure. It has, as mentioned, it uh, has a wide range of application. I've been uh, working on different uh, case studies. Some of them were for. A more uh, maxil- uh, maxillofacial uh, surgeries. Wanted to replace a jaw. Uh, some of them were uh, more working on the hip hip implants. Mm. Uh, but it depends. Uh, like this technology has different categories. Uh, the one that I uh, I presented in the article is more dec- extrusion based technique. Mm. Basically, uh, printing. Uh, Polymers, uh, mixture of polymers and ceramics in these materials, layer by layer, but uh, it has other applications. Like As part of this technology, we have other techniques, basically printing uh, metal powders layer by layer and uh, creating metal structures.
0: So it still sounds like there's some obviously some research and some work going on in terms of the me- m- mechanical side of, of the the polymers and the alginates and, and trying to find about find out the the proper way to combine these things to make sure that they're going to work for the job that you want them to do as well as be cell friendly. Um, is this a, is this is this a technology that is a uh, cost friendly? The type of material that I was working with
1: uh, it's not very, it's not very expensive. So I was, for example, was working with gelatin. It's a mm. uh, gelo that we eat day by day. Mm-hmm. So it's not very expensive. But sometimes, uh, specifically, we want to improve the biological properties of these structures. For example, we want to adjust uh, the molecular weight, or sometimes we want to add some peptides or some other biological stuff that improve the biological uh, biological performance of the whole structure. And so sometimes these uh, materials are not uh, not kind of cheap. And this is one of the reasons that we go towards uh, developing numerical models uh, in order to do some, uh, some, some of the calculations ahead of time, rather than using these expensive materials and create the structure and then see, for example, the mechanical properties is not enough uh, or it's, it's higher than the required. Uh, so this is, uh, this is one of the things that uh, many researchers are, are working on. Sometimes these materials are not very, uh, uh, not, not very accessible, not in the market, sometimes very expensive. Uh, mm-hmm. But this is uh, because it's under uh, its research and development. I believe that in a few years, if this is the, mat- if the there's an expensive material, but if in few years we are going to use it day by day, it shouldn't be that expensive.
0: Okay, now the one other thing that's in your article, and you may be referring to this as we were talking here, and the novel numerical model that you that you developed and use to help the you know the mechanical behavior of of the structures, the alginate structures, is right. is this? So this is all based on if I understand this, it's based on numbers. It's just in, in inputting things. Is that correct? Uh, so these
1: uh, numerical models. Uh, we have different types of uh, different types of models, uh, but basically, with these numerical models, we always go with some assumptions. Uh, the goal of uh, our study was to reduce the number of assumptions because, as you reduce the number of assumptions to go with the numerical modeling, you are going to getting close to the real structure of a scaffold. Mm. For example. Many times in numerical modeling, they consider a cylindrical shape uh, S-trans as part of a scaffold structure. But this is not the case. We can see that after printing, it's not always a cylindrical shape. It has different structures, and in layers by layers, it's different. And that's why we are going to use some uh, uh, imaging techniques in order to capture the real structure of a scaffold and sometimes reduce the assumptions by checking the real structure of a scaffold and that add this information as an input uh, to the model. And after that, uh, we will be able to, for example, predict the mechanical properties of a specific uh, structure. Basically, instead of fabricating the structure in real, we fabricate it in virtual reality and
0: then we do the analysis. And then we do the prediction. Hmm. <clears throat> wow. All fascinating, all fascinating stuff, uh, Saman. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show and uh, explain more about this 3D printed printer uh, ability to uh, you know potentially replace organs and, and transplant, even if they are temporary, as you say at this point. I can't imagine what the future will hold for this technology. And it sounds like you're in a very fascinating uh, line of work in what you do. <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. You bet. You take care and thanks again for bringing this article to our attention. And we want to thank you for being on the show to talk about it. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, you take care. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thank you, David. Okay, bye-bye. That is right. the voice of Saman Nahi, and he is currently the design engineer at the Biofabrication Laboratory. He's a mechanical engineer experienced in design, fabrication, project management, and solid works with a good knowledge of advanced um, man- manufacturing. And uh, he works with the Department of Mechanical Engineering, the Division of Biomechanical Engineering at the University of Saskatchewan. We've talked to him about his article in The Conversation entitled 3D Printed Organs Could Save Lives by Addressing the Transplant Shortage. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again tomorrow right here on Moment of Truth.
3: This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses.
0: Element.
2: Element. Element FM.